um, a little bit different the way that we're going to um, the way that we're gonna we're gonna kind of begin our time together <coughs> this morning. Um, but I've asked a, uh, a friend of ours, um, a friend of this church's, who's been here with us for, for some time now, um, to come and to read our passage uh, for the morning. And so, Radiate, why don't you come up, and Radiate's going to read our passage uh, for us this morning. We're in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 27 and going through verse 33. We're finishing, um, we're finishing chapter 11 this morning. It was a very odd break, um, just because we were... In in Mark, and then we took this break for the season of Advent, and then we took a two-week break to um, to, to to look at uh, Acts chapter two and the birth of the church, its advancement, to consider our mission and our our vision, our values here as a fellowship as we go into 2018. And now we're back in Mark, um, where we where we started, right? This is where we started, and so now we are um, we're back. So, um, Radier, would you read for us, uh, beginning in verse 27 and through verse 33? They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? they asked, and who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Amen. Thank you, Radiate. Uh, let's pray together. Father, thanks for your word and for your faithfulness, the, 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 the preserving of your word, and now how you uh, do by the power of your spirit um, just peel open our hearts and our minds. And you, and you, you, you bring such incredible news of, of, of hope um, and grace. And so we're just so grateful um, for who you are and for what you have done and for our time together this morning. We pray that it would indeed be a time um, that, is, that is beneficial for our souls that encourages us and convicts us in unique ways as we seek to um, live with a posture um, of, of worship directed to you through our King Jesus. Uh, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we begin our time together this morning and close out chapter 11 and, and, and now this long walk right to the end of Mark that we have before us, we see this morning a, a confrontation that's absent of any type of confession. We, we see this confrontation between the, the religious leaders, the chief priests, and Jesus. And what we see through this confrontation is that there is a dialogue, but there's no confession offered. And, and so we kind of begin our time with this question. I want, us to consider, I want us to consider how we respond to the teaching of Jesus that so oftentimes creates disturbance in our own personal framework. How do we respond as a people with the teaching of Jesus when it, when it disrupts our framework? Well, if we're going to ask that question, the first thing that we need to do really is to define framework, don't we? We need to understand what we mean and what we're asking when we, when we present, when we pose this question. You see, our framework is this. 
Our framework is the way that we look at the world and the way that we understand things that we hear, right? Things that we learn and things that we experience. We all have a framework, right? Every one of us in this room, whether you came in here this morning and you had ever heard that terminology or not, you have a framework. And our frameworks are oftentimes informed by things like who our parents are. Or where we live geographically, right? Where we find ourselves. You consider the United States, for example. Depending on what part of our country you find yourself living in, there are vastly different frameworks that are often produced in these specific areas. Maybe it's based on where we are educated, where we go to school. Our faith oftentimes informs our framework, our church, the music that we listen to and, and the media, right, that we interact with, that we engage with. You guys, you get the idea, right? You understand what we're, what we're talking about, about the informing of one's frameworks. And we can say this, that frameworks are not always bad. Right? Frameworks aren't always bad. They're not necessarily bad. But what we find at times is our framework colliding with God's word. At which point, our frameworks must yield to the authority of the word. And so let's say that, let's say that again. Framework informed by all of the things that we've seen up until this point don't, are not necessarily bad. Right, But when it becomes a major problem is when God's word right, speaks and informs, uh, informs a particular area of thought or feeling for you and I that has been otherwise right, informed or shaped by the things of this world to which we go, I am way too comfortable right, with the way things currently are to submit, my, uh, submit myself right, and to transform my framework in light of what God's word has to say. Does that make sense? What we're saying is that, that when it comes to what God's all authoritative word has to say, that our desire ought to always be that, that the framework of scripture would rule and reign as king over our earthly constructed frameworks. We see this in issues like, right, theological and maybe scriptural interpretation, Right, the way that we understand perhaps who God is based on what, uh, on, on maybe even a perversion of scripture that we have been taught in the past, right? We're confronted with issues like God's righteous wrath and his just anger towards and against sin. And depending on how the Bible has been taught to us in the past, perhaps we don't have that understanding or that perception of who, uh, God is. Right, that God, that God hates sin, right, and He desires the sin that exists in us to be extinguished, regardless of how happy that particular pet sin might make us. Right, maybe it has to do with relationships, be that heterosexual relationships, and how those are to um, how how those exist, and how we relate with one another, or homosexual relationships, or cross cultural relationships. Let's just say this, like the Christian life as a whole, life as a whole. The question that we're confronted with and the question that people have been confronted with for 2,000 years is this. Right? How will our hearts and our frameworks be informed by the truth of God's word? 
right? Will there be a, 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 a submission to God's word or will there be a standoff between what we believe and the way that we see the world and interpret the things around us and what God has to say? What we see in Mark 11 is a framework that is at a crossroads, right? We see a a question that results in a question that requires a decision to be made. Will my framework in this situation, right, who is Jesus, be informed by my expectation or the evidence that's presented before me? Over the past few weeks, well, not the past few weeks, but the past few months, because we haven't been in the Gospel of Mark over the past few weeks, right? But over the past few months, we have seen Jesus exercise his supreme authority, We've seen him exercise his his power and his dominion over the things of this world. We've seen him move about from region to region, again, going all the way back to what we see in the beginning, proclaiming the good news of the coming of the kingdom that he has brought and that is to be initiated in a newer way and in a better way at the resurrection and one day ultimately full and new, complete, as this world is done away with, right? And we, and we stand in light of a redeemed people and a redeemed earth, a glorified place, absent of sin. And sadness. We've seen Jesus come into Jerusalem in most recent weeks, and he's now living out, right, the last few days of his life here on earth before he would go to the cross. And then we come into Matthew, Mark, I'm sorry, chapter 11. I did, a, uh, I did a, uh, a, a middle school retreat Friday and Saturday, and I was in Matthew. And so, like, I'm constantly wanting to go back to Matthew, but we're in Mark. And so we'll stay there, okay? We won't go to Matthew this morning. Although Matthew is incredible, right? And it was a wonderful few days in Matthew. But we're in Mark. That's where we're going to be, and that's where we're going to stay for now. So what's our big idea this morning? What are we working towards? What do we see through this passage? And what, what is it that we are to, to learn and to glean and to see from uh, this very small portion of Mark chapter 11? Let, let's say this about what we're going to see this morning, that while the human heart stands in the way of submission to the authority of Christ, our king remains steadfast in his commitment to our transformation. That was lengthy, right? Let me say that one more time. While the human heart stands in the way of submission to the authority of Christ, our king, Jesus, remains steadfast in his commitment to our transformation, to the transformation of his people. And so the first way that we see this this morning is, is through this challenge and this counter of Christ, to this question, this dialogue. Right? For the religious establishment, the, 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 the practice of Christ, seen through the things that he has said and the works that he has done, has caused major disturbance. For some time. 
right? If we, if we think back and we consider what we've seen over the course of our time together in Mark's gospel, we see on numerous occasions his teaching being admired as being different from those who held positions of high power and prestige. There was an, an obvious understanding from the people of the authenticity that Jesus has, that transcends that which the leaders offered to the people, which makes total sense in light of the passion of Christ for sinners, right? From one end of the spectrum to the other, observed in Jesus at specific points, right? We can say this about Christ. We can say this about Jesus based on what we observe from God's word and his earthly ministry. That Jesus cared about people. That he cared about people and that he desired an authenticity from their worship that had been up until this point lacking. That there was this desire that led him to, to chase towards those who 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 prevented truth and true worship from taking place, leading to the religious leaders to desire his demise. Consider what we saw as we closed out our time in the Gospel of Mark before the season of Advent and the two-week series on the church. We saw Jesus cleanse the temple, right? We see the fig tree thing going on, and then we see the cleansing of the temple, and then we see this explanation of the fig tree. And through the the cleansing of the temple, the closing of the temple, perhaps a better way that we can understand what's going on there and in that middle portion of Mark chapter 11, we see Jesus displaying this righteous anger towards the, the lack of true, genuine, authentic worship that is taking place in the temple. Right, the fact that the, 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 the Gentiles had been, in a sense, prevented right, from approaching and worshiping God in, in, in truth as he had desired them to by way of just this bazaar that had been set up there in the courts. Worship is being disrupted. And as we look back at that middle portion of Mark chapter 11, we see that Jesus takes major issue with that. And as a result, in chapter 11, verse 18, we see the leaders beginning to desire to a greater degree his demise. A threat that Jesus is aware of, and at the same time, being aware of this threat, he walks directly in with this pure and righteous desire to bring his authority to the forefront. As he goes back to the temple, as we saw Radier read, and begins teaching, and he does that through this dialogue with the chief priests that we see in verses 27 and 28. A challenge from the chief priests to the authority of Jesus. This is what they have to say in verse 28. Look there with me. Jesus is, is teaching, and after all of the events that had taken place at the temple, this major chaotic scene that had just broken out, upon Jesus' return, he's confronted by the chief priests, and they ask him in verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things? Right? Or, or, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus is speaking of the much-needed reform to the practices of God's people and the hearts behind these practices. 
And what we see through this question is that the chief priests essentially request from Jesus his ordination papers. Despite the authority that he had displayed throughout his earthly ministry. Of little regard is Christ's authority over demons, right? And the liberation of the spiritually and physically oppressed, both of which we see taking place earlier on in Mark's gospel. Of of little regard is the authority of Jesus over the elements and his power to pronounce sinners forgiven. But but instead, in the in the practice of the, the chief priests in Mark eleven is this challenge. And it's a challenge, really, if we consider what they're asking here to the hearts of each of us, because our tendency is very similar to the tendency we see of the chief priests and scribes here. In Mark chapter eleven, our tendency, as is theirs, is to question God. Right to, to question God as though he does not have the authority to speak instruction over and into our lives. Can we relate with this? Right? It's, it's glorious news that we are not our own. And it is, at times, challenging news for us to hear that we are not our own. Christ has been demonized by those who were supposed to be the light to the nations and proclaimers of his arrival. And instead, he is being interrogated. And we see here, here's what we get. We get this picture of the ugliness of sin. We get this picture of of the ugliness of, of a hardened heart. Of a rebellious heart that confronts Christ and questions his authority. The king of all creation stands in Mark 11. In this this pre-trial of sorts, prior to his seizure and execution upon the cross. If he, being Jesus, admits that he has no religious credential in answering the question that's been posed to him, then it's possible that the respect of the people will be lost. This is what's on the line as Jesus is presented with this question. And if he claims a divine authority, which he has every right to do because he possesses it, then he will be charged with blasphemy and he would be arrested. What we will see ultimately take place. And yet we see here, and this is incredible. I want us to consider how we would likely respond if we possessed all of the authority in the cosmos given to us by the Father, and then, right, in the corner of this world, right, this small corner, our authority was challenged by those who were supposed to be the ones announcing and proclaiming the arrival of the long-anticipated and long-awaited-for king. I don't know that mine would be gracious, right? 
Like, I don't know that my response, in fact, I'm quite sure that my response would not be one of, of grace, but it would look a lot more like, like bows being thrown, right? If you know what I'm talking about here, right? Like, I would, there would be this, this, this anger, right? That would, that would naturally weigh, I mean, think about it. Consider just the, the slight injustices that we experience in our own lives that produce within us such strong anger and, and feeling, right? When any, any ounce of our authority is questioned, our tendency is to lash out, to strike back. And yet from Jesus, we see a response of grace. And at the same time, get this, we see a a response of truth. We see Jesus force their hands in a sense An answer from Jesus to the question that's being asked by the chief priests will require something of them. It will require them to step out and to address these issues of faith and belief. And we see that in verse 29. Look with me at verse 29. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And so, awesome. Right? Like, you guys want to, you want to dialogue about this. Stellar. Great idea. Why don't you answer this question that I posed to you in response to the question that you have asked me? And if you, if you answer it, then, then we'll begin engaging. And the question is this. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And we're talking about the baptism of of John the Baptist at this point. And we see that Christ's desire here is to display his authority, which he does through this this counter question, while at the same time challenging the heart and the framework of the chief priests. This is a framework that's being challenged. Right there's a there's a there's a framework flowing from a hardness of heart that is, that ultimately prevents these chief priests from observing that which stands right before them. This expectation that that the coming Messiah would look a certain way, despite the fact that the scriptures speak of the coming of a suffering servant. Right, one whose kingdom would be would be initiated and brought in in a very different way than those who are to be announcing his arrival expect. And so we see this framework that's possessed, right, by the chief priests. And this framework runs in direct contradiction with that which they see before them in Jesus. You are not what we were expecting. And so through the question... We see a a challenge. We see a logical question and one that forces an examination of the evidence surrounding Jesus that speaks directly towards his person and his identity. The question that Jesus presents back to them will require them to submit their broken and corrupt and perverted framework. It will require that of them if they are to hear back from Jesus. The second thing that we see is this. We see a concession on behalf of the chief priests and an unwillingness to compromise from Jesus. Essentially, what we're going to see is this, that the chief priests don't want to play ball. 
right? Instead, they want to take their ball and they want to go home, for lack of a better illustration. And Jesus says, if that's the way that it's going to be, listen, like we're, we're just not going to, we're not going to do it. Like we're not going to, we're not going to have the conversation apart from a, 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 a true and real and authentic concession that ultimately produces, as we know, in us a confession, which we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. The issue with the chief priests is the same snare that many of us find ourselves entangled in. Right? It's not a problem of evidence. We can literally go back and we can we can see example after example after example of Jesus displaying this supreme authority of Jesus doing things that no one else does. Right? His, his authority is, is not one that is to be questioned based on the evidence that has been presented. He has done more than enough to speak towards right? his divine identity. And so it's not an issue of, of evidence in the case of the chief priests. And for many of us, it's not a case of evidence, right? We have the evidence. We have God's word. It has been preserved and it speaks of his glorious and good deeds for a broken people to bring about a redemption. And so if it's not an issue of evidence, then what's the problem? Well, the, the problem is sin, Right, the, the problem is sin. The, the idols of our hearts are the real issue. Right, let's consider for a moment the accountability that comes along with the confession of Christ. If this is my confession, then, then I understand that my life will never be the same. And I like my life too much. For that, consider the things that we say, even as we, as we participate each week in the reciting together of the Apostles' Creed. Right? We affirm the Lordship of Christ. Right? We, we affirm His divine authority and the right that He possesses in and of Himself as the Creator and the Sustainer and the Redeemer to ask of a people whatever He desires. And for a people to respond by bending the knee, by confessing, by, by, by proclaiming faith, by saving faith by God's great and amazing grace. But the problem is that, that the idols of our hearts often tell us, right, that, that if I make this confession, if I bow this knee, if I bend this knee to Christ and confess him as Lord, right, thus, thus seeing him occupy a position of, of Savior in my life, then my life looks very different, right? It changes, and I don't know that that's something that I'm, I'm ready for. Right, maybe that's the issue, or, or maybe it's the fear of man. In the case of verses 31 through 33, the fear of the crowd leads the chief priests to fold. I mean, just absolutely fold up, right, under the weight of the question and its consequences. Look with me there in verse 31. Jesus presents the question, and the chief priests respond. They, they almost, it, it looks like this huddle, right? Okay, like, 
like uh, say by the bell, time out, right? Let's huddle up right here and let's discuss the question that's just been presented back to us. How do we answer this? Right? How do we respond to what, to what Jesus has said here? If we say that the baptism of John is from heaven, then he will say, why then did you not believe him? Right? Because what, what is he pointing towards here? This reality that John pointed towards Christ. Right? He, he affirmed the identity of Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But if we say from man, well, they were afraid, we see. They, they, they were afraid of all the people, right? This, this crowd that had gathered around, for they all held that John was indeed a prophet, that he was really a prophet. And so they just answered Jesus and said, listen, like we, we don't know, <laughs> right? We, we don't know. That's not true. Like there is this knowledge, but they're just they're 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 unwilling to embrace the consequences that come along with either answer. The, the same hard heart that led the religious leaders to to shrink back, which is exactly what we see going on here. Let us not be confused. This is an epic fallback. Okay, this is this is one for the books. The same hard hearts that lead the religious leaders to shrink back at the unjust murder of John the Baptist at the hands of Herod have now made it impossible for this honest examination of the authority of Christ to be engaged in. Right as as, as John is is seized by Herod and, and unjustly murdered as a result of, of speaking and proclaiming truth in the midst of a incredibly sinful and, and, and chaotic and strange situation, his life is taken from him. And when that occurs, we see from the establishment absolutely no outcry, no outrage against the injustice that's taken place. And because that is true, they now find themselves in a position to which they can't speak towards any of this with any type of authenticity because they, they weren't there in the first place, right? They weren't there in the beginning to which Jesus responds in verse 33. Here we go. You don't want to play ball, right? You don't want to dialogue. This is incredible from Jesus. Well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Right? If, we're, if, we're, if there's not present this this authenticity and this willingness to be to be totally transparent which is going to in turn lead this particular group of individuals we pray to a posture of repentance what ought to take place right when there is this honest and authentic look at the hardness of the human heart and sin and the reality of the person and the work of Jesus if that's not to happen then we're just not going to have this conversation it's just not going to happen. Essentially, if you're not willing to accept the evidence that is placed before you and have a discussion, if you are both unwilling and unable to abandon your corrupt and evil framework, then we are at an impasse and the conversation is just over. This is the concession made by the chief priests. 
right? We are unwilling to address these issues to which we see Jesus stand firm and display this absolute unwillingness to compromise. Jesus does not compromise, Right? This is who our God is, right? On Thursday morning, I've told many of you this. We were, we're going through a group of college students and myself. We're going through uh, the, the book of Exodus. We're going through the book of Exodus because before Christ the King was planted, we were in the book of Exodus, and we got like 21 chapters in, and then we had to reboot and begin the Gospel of Mark. And so we went back to the beginning of Exodus, and we're going through it again. And so some of these guys are like, all I know is the first like 21 chapters of Exodus. I don't know if there's anything after that or not, but maybe we'll get there eventually. And what we've observed there, and this just speaks towards, towards the, um, the, the, the eternal consistency of our God. We see this continual dialogue take place between, between God and Moses and Moses and Pharaoh. And there are multiple points through the sending of the ten plagues upon the land of Egypt as a result of the, of the sin that exists in the heart of Pharaoh and in this community, Right? This, this refusal to let God's people go. We see multiple times and multiple points in which Pharaoh says, okay, I'll do this. You've asked me to do this, but I'll do this. Almost as like a, you know, this, um, this compromising that is to take place. And we see all the way back in Exodus that God refuses to engage in any type of compromise. We see the same thing from Jesus here. He is not compromising. He has and possesses an authority that does not require that. This passage speaks towards this issue of authority. Right? And it speaks towards Christ's authority. Verse that of the rulers of, of the various earthly institutions, including if we do close examination of our own hearts, our own lives, you and I who have a tendency to do this, to crown ourselves as king of our own little kingdoms, deciding for ourselves what is right and what is wrong, what is moral and what is immoral. It does us well to step back and to consider the authority of our king. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, we see that Christ is given all authority on heaven and earth. In Matthew, yes, really Matthew this time, chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus says that all things have been handed over to me by the Father. Right, we, we see this authority that is possessed by the Son as God incarnate. The same authority that makes His death for sinners on the cross of any benefit. Here's the deal. If we ask Christ to surrender His authority in the way that we so oftentimes do, in a way that makes our lives most comfortable and our world most enjoyable, then we have to go back and we have to say, if that's true, then of what benefit is the cross? If, if Christ, the authoritative and preeminent one, is not the one who is indeed nailed to the cross, absorbing for you and I the punishment from God for our sin as the authoritative one, then is it of benefit 
an authority and a, and a work that demands and then produces heart change without the sacrifice of the authoritative king of all creation in our place. Here's the deal. There is no resurrection. There, there's no resurrection for Christ and not for us, leading us to see that the authority of Jesus in Mark 11 is only magnified through his authority over death. What do we mean by that? Well, let's consider what takes place at the cross and in the days following. Right? Christ, Christ gives himself right, as, a, as a substitute in our place upon the cross. He, he dies. He pours out his life. He surrenders it. He lays it down, in a sense, only to then exercise this supreme authority to three days later take it up again. And, and so we have to say this, that the same authority that saves us demands from us ultimate submission and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. Let me say that one more time because this is huge. This is huge. The same authority that saves us demands ultimate submission and surrender to the Lordship of our Savior, of Jesus. This is the desire for those listening in Mark chapter 11. Right? This is the call. This is the posture that is produced when a heart is broken and when sin is confessed, that faith is, is, is given. And there is this announcement and this surrender. This, this giving up and this giving and this giving over, right? To, to fail in this area is to adopt the position of the chief priests that we see here, right? To fail in this area is to adopt the position of the chief priests that we see here. And so as we, as we come to just the conclusion of, of our time together today. And we ask this question, how does God, in light of these truths, this presentation of the authority of Jesus that's been challenged and been turned away, I mean just been dismantled, how does God desire his people to respond? How does God desire his people to respond well, I think we can begin with submission to the Lordship of Christ. Submission to the Lordship of, of Christ. Now, we have to distinguish this between submission to the Lord of Christ. Now, there's just a few letters that are different there, but when we understand the concepts that are being communicated, they're vastly different. I heard this from a pastor recently as I was enjoying uh, one of their church's podcasts, and he was discussing the idea of the difference between lore of Christ and lordship of Christ. Now, these are two vastly different things, but I am not uh, confused or, or even scared to say that there are perhaps individuals even in this room who have submitted to the lore of Christ, but have never submitted themselves to the lordship of Christ. And so when we talk about the lore of Christ, what are we talking about? When we talk about the lore of Christ, we're talking about submission to a system or, or submission to a tradition. 
And maybe for you, uh, up until this point in your life, as we sit here on campus at the University of West Georgia 2018, here we come, right? This is where you have been. This has been the position, this has been the posture that you have been occupying, that you have surrendered yourself to a tradition, or you have surrendered yourself to a, a system, but you have never surrendered yourself to the king who demands... An active, living faith that flows from a transformed life. A life that is transformed by grace through faith. This reliance in the death and the resurrection of Jesus for our forgiveness. And so as we talk application, we've got to say, man, is that me? Like, is that where I have been? Is that what I've been up to? Have I been surrendered to a, a tradition or a, a, a system that was perhaps my parents and has been transferred on down to me? Or, or is geographically based? We live in a Bible Belt, man. It's just one thing that we've got to address, right? All of the, the benefits that coming in, come in living in this particular region, there are also extreme challenges. And that, that, that is that there is often an unregenerateness that exists within God's people, that there's been this lore that's been surrendered to, that, that church has been what we do and where we go, but it never has been what we have been made into, right? And, and so we ask this, this question, we distinguish between these things, and we say, am I submitted to, to, to the lore of Christ, or am I submitted to the lordship of, of Christ, While we see the human heart stand in the way of this, which is exactly what we see taking place in, in Mark chapter 7, we see again and again and again, and we'll continue to see this as we work our way through the gospel of Mark until we conclude it, and whatever book we go on to after this, we'll see it again. And that is this, our king remaining steadfast and committed to the work. That work being the glorification of the Father and the transformation of sinners. Our king is committed to this work. And so here's what I want us to do as we, as we close our time out together in light of the truths that we've seen from God's word this morning. We're going to, as we do each week, go and take uh, the Lord's Supper together as a body of believers, right? Those who have been given this gift of faith and are now living in community with God and one another, informed by and empowered by his spirit. I want us to ask ourselves a series of questions. I want us to ask these, these questions. I want us to consider these questions. I want us to pray through these things as we approach the table today. Have I responded to Christ's call to submission to his kingship by way of his clear and expressed authority? Let's say that another way because that's long. And I like words and it sounds good, but what does it mean? Is Jesus my king? Is Jesus my king? Is Jesus my king? And then we have to ask this. Does my life reflect that reality? Does my life reflect that? The, the second thing that I want us to ask is this. How do we, I, respond to Christ's challenge of any unbiblical framework in my life? What is it that rules and what is it that reigns? Is it the way that we believe ourselves to, to be living, right? The things that we enjoy, right? The allure and the shine of the world, right? The things that bring us momentary joy and comfort. Or do are we willing to surrender whatever it 
may be? Are we willing to to leave behind whatever it may be in order to adopt this biblical framework as a guide, as instruction and good news for our lives? What I want us to do as I pray is I want us to consider these questions. And I want us to to go to the table today considering these questions with repentant hearts, remembering Christ's death, his resurrection, and his return. I want us to consider these questions as we go to the table today. And I want us to be honest, and I want us to be transparent, and I want us to be authentic. Because the danger in in, in avoiding that is finding ourselves in a similar posture as the chief priests we see as we close out our time in Mark chapter 11.